This is Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war will rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 27 is an interesting psalm because it kind of goes on with the theme that we've looked at with this idea of fear and God being near to us in the middle of that. So uh, for, to tee us up into getting into the psalms this morning, which really, the psalms encourage us to be really fully present where we're at. That's, if anything we see in the psalms, that's what we see. And we see God uh, giving us, the, the psalmist rather, giving us voice to God in the midst of the trials of our lives. So to tee us up, I want to play a little game. <laughs> a couple of you looked up, a game? Okay, here we go. When I was a youth pastor, we used to do icebreakers. And uh, one of the icebreakers that we did when I was a youth pastor is this game called Would You Rather? So if you wouldn't mind indulging me and participating in this quick round of Would You Rather? So here's how it works. I will read to you two options. And one, I'll read one option, and I'll read the second option, and I'll say, would you rather do that? Raise your hand. Would you rather do that? Raise your hand. And there is no in-between. You have to pick one of these choices. You'll simply uh, identify with one of the statements by raising your hand. So let's give it a try. Would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? Be able to fly. Let me see it. Let me see it. Okay. Be invisible. All right. There's all the introverts. Good, good. Uh, would you rather... Uh, Would you rather sweat melted cheese or always smell like skunk? Sweat melted cheese? Always smell like skunk. Uh, There's a couple of you, okay. You're you're bold, I love it, I love it. Would you rather always say everything on your mind or never be able to speak again? Always say everything on your mind? Yeah, there they are, yep. Yep. Uh, and never be able to speak again. Yeah, there we go. That's good. That's perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the reason why I share that with you is that in Psalm 27, what David does is he plays a little game of would you rather as he is praying to his Father in heaven. You know, he, 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 goes, he goes into this place of looking at the worst case scenarios of his life and then asking the question, where is my confidence? 
Where is my confidence in the middle of this? Here's these worst-case scenarios. You know how we kind of immediately go to the worst-case scenario, right? It looks a little something like this if you're unfamiliar with it. You're at work, and your boss doesn't say hi to you in the morning. And so immediately you start playing out the tape in your mind, oh, I've got a review later this week. I'm going to get a bad review. And if I get a bad review, I'm probably going to lose my job. And if I lose my job, I'm definitely going to lose my house. If I lose my house, I'll probably lose my wife and my kids, and life is not going to be worth living. That's what we do. We go to the worst case scenario in our mind when we get put into a situation. So David says, hey, let's just roll with it. We're all used to going to the worst case scenario in our mind. Let's roll with it and let's see if we have any hope to be found in God in the midst of it. So what are the worst case scenarios that David draws up? Uh, the first one uh, is, is found in verses 2 and 3 and then in verse 10, so I'll read them to you. Uh, verses 2, and th- verse two uh, Psalm 27, 2, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes. So these kind of blood-sucking people are coming after me relentlessly, seeking to tear me down. Where will my hope be? In verse 3 he says, Though an army encamp against me. Now we, David probably really experienced this one. Though, though an entire army seek to tear me apart, where will my hope be? Or verse 10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me. The closest people to you in life forsake you. They don't want anything to do with you. Where will my hope be? Because in verse 3, it says, Though that army encamps against me, though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Yet I will be confident. This is what David is after. This is what the Holy Spirit is after in each and every one of you. The worst case scenarios of your life Uh, Sometimes they happen. Sometimes they're not just playing out as a tape in our mind. Sometimes we experience those things. So I'm going to ask you to do something bold this morning. Let the tape play out. What is keeping you up at night right now? What is the worst case scenario that you could experience right now in life? Because if God is not meeting us in the worst case scenarios of our lives as they play out in our mind, We're kind of living this false life, only presenting to Him that which is acceptable and pleasing, but not our real, true selves that are dealing with this anxiety and this tension that exists within us. So what is the worst case scenario for you right now? What is it? Because I'm confident that God wants to meet you in the middle of it this morning. So be thinking about that. I don't want it to overtake you and overwhelm you, but I just want to acknowledge the elephant in the proverbial room. What is it that is the worst case scenario for you right now in life? Psalm 27.1 kind of gives this anthem of the confident heart in God. It gives this anthem, and it's this. It's, it's probably the most familiar verse out of Psalm 27. And he says this, The Lord is a light. No, no. The Lord is my light, and the Lord is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Church, this is the lens of the Christian. This is how God intends you and I to look at everything in our life through in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is being formed in us, and as a result of that, we have ownership in our salvation because Christ Jesus has made us his own. He's our light. He's not just a light. He's our salvation. He's not just a way to salvation. He's the way, and he's ours. We own him. I want you to notice in that the, the progression of light and salvation. I think they are indicative of how we come to know Jesus. Light precedes salvation. In the theological world, there's this phrase called illumination, and we have to be illumined to the things of God. God has to give us a new heart. God has to give us a heart that sees the treasure of Scripture about Jesus Christ as good news to us. Because without the Holy Spirit doing that, it's just another book. It's a lot of rain. So God gives us light that makes Jesus a pleasing aroma to us. And that that is what He does. And this is our lens that we look at all of life through. It, It seems that David in this psalm He's really after God. He's, he sees Him as His light and His salvation, and there's ownership there. The Lord is very personal to Him. He's not at a distance. I mean, who else do we see in, scriptures who, who in, in the Scriptures or in life in general has the confidence in God after He has sinned so grievously as to commit adultery and then have a, a, a cover-up scheme where he murders one of his military officials. And he has this confidence in God that God will still love him even on the darkest night of his soul. That is the confidence that you and I have in Jesus Christ because guess what? It's not up to us. Jesus gives us that kind of confidence that he is there when we can see very little of him in our circumstances. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to fully embrace our worst case scenarios. And we're going to look for the light of heaven to shine in the midst of those. And we're going to pray that the anthem of Psalm 27.1 would be our anthem as we leave this place today in light of our worst case scenarios. So here's the question and answer. How do I get confidence in God that deals with even worst case scenario moments? Psalm 27 answers this. By dwelling in God through seeking His face, gazing on His beauty, and expectantly waiting for Him to show up in all of our circumstances. So let's look at the first kind of uh, antidote that David gives us in Psalm 27.4. Dwell in God. So let's look at Psalm 27.4 again real quick if you've got your Bible in front of you. David says this, One thing that I've asked of the Lord and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Now, so when we read temple, our minds immediately go to a physical structure. You know, in the Older Testament, there's the temple, the place that sacrifices were performed and worship occurred. The issue with us thinking about it purely physically is that no one is allowed to dwell in the temple. You had to be a Levite to, to, to access the temple, and, and, and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, which is where the presence of God was, one day a year. And so 
He has to be talking about something more spiritual in nature. That, there, that, it, that, it, that it is like we are dwelling in the house of the Lord when we are communing with our Father in heaven. It's a, it's a spiritual house, a spiritual invitation that we are welcomed into in Jesus. He says, one thing I, I asked of the Lord. I just simply ask you this question. What's your one thing? What is it that's your one thing right now that... That, that really, if we were honest, because we would all kind of, because we're in the South and we're, we're cordial, nice folks, we would say God is our one thing. But what, what is it in your life that if, if it was taken away, your world would stop spinning? That's your one thing. And you know how to discover your one thing? Is you, you hunt down the fear of your worst case scenario because it is leaving a, cra- a trail of crumbs to the roots of your heart. So, so you, you identify the fear and you trace it back to your heart and you see what your one thing is. This is why David says, hey, let's uproot that thing and let's see what's at the bottom of it. And he says, you know, the Lord is at the bottom of it because he's always been my light and he's always been my salvation. When I couldn't defend myself when that army was against me, when I couldn't care for myself, the Lord took me in because my, even my parents abandoned me. He draws up these situations. How do you dwell anywhere? You have to stay. You have to remain. You have to spend time there. You see, David is not looking for a visit of the Lord. He's looking for a dwelling place in the Lord. I think a lot of times the way that we respond uh, to, to God dwelling with us and us communing with Him is like when that distant relative comes through Atlanta on their way to Florida from the north and they want to spend the night with you. You know what I'm talking about, anybody? You have people kind of traveling through, they want to stay the night with you. Um, maybe we just have too many people doing that, I don't know. But uh, they, they come by and so we, we, we go to the spare bedroom, we get it all cleaned up, get it all dusted off, we get, we get the, the, you know, the, 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 the blankets and stuff all washed and clean and we get it ready for them and then when they leave we kind of let it go back downhill again. We're not just preparing a temporary place for God to stay. We're asking him to dwell in us and us in him. This is what David uh, is after here. And, and, and one thing that I've learned is that confidence in the Lord cannot be rushed. It is a process that occurs over time. And you even see that in the language of seeking and gazing after the Lord in his temple. Those are ongoing kinds of things that are being formed in us. That confidence comes over time. I mean, think about it in your life. The people that you have the most confidence in are the people that you have the longest track record with. And you see this uh, evidence of faithfulness over time. And they're loyal, and you think, man, I can really trust them. I can go to them with this because they've always been there for me. Well, the Lord is the same way with us. I, I was thinking of a, of a little bit of a, a scary situation in our house a, a few uh, months ago where uh, we had an outbreak of rabid possums. You heard that right. Berry Cove Lane, outbreak of rabid possums. Megan, here's how it worked. Megan uh, texts me. She was leaving to go somewhere. She pulls out. She says, hey, there's like a little creature behind the pumpkin on the stoop in front of the house. And I'm thinking, okay, it's like a big bug or something, right? And so I go out there and sure enough, there's like this fuzzy possum on our porch like trying to get into our house and so I kind of shoo it away with a broom 
Next thing I know, she pulls back in. She says, hey, Ryan, the possum is on the side of the garage. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. I go out into the garage. I'm on the inside of the garage. I see his paw through the garage door, like that little seal there. His paw is through it. He is trying to get into my garage. And I'm thinking, next thing I know, my kid's going to leave the door open. He's going to be in the house. What am I going to do? And so I do what any good man would do. I call my father-in-law and say, hey, what do I do with this thing? And he says, hey, man, you got to deal with that thing. There's something going on. It's going to be in your house. And so I dealt with it. I'm not going to give you the details of how I dealt with it, but uh, he, he was no longer. Well, the next day, I'm working on my truck in the driveway, and I'm like under it, bolting something on or something or another. And uh, it's midday, full sun outside, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And all of a sudden, you know, I see this scurry little creature go past my feet in the middle of my driveway at 3 o'clock in the afternoon into my garage. He, he just, the garage door's open because I'm working. Goes straight into the garage and goes under the lockers that are in our garage. And he hides there. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Walking straight up into my house. And so, uh, you know, the kids, uh, they were scared the night before because of the, the possum. And we showed them and there was like a little, you know, uh, viewing party out there. And then the next day, they're like, Dad, you got to deal with this thing. So they kind of start chanting, you know, take him out, take him out. And so... And so I, you know, grab the two by four and get to business again. And so, uh, anyway, that was the last of the, of the rabid possums on Berry Cove Lane. But uh, I'll tell you this, the, the second day of that, you know, one of my jobs as a, one of my roles as a father and a husband is to protect my family. And they were, I mean, kind of in imminent danger of the, the possums on the loose. And so, you know, uh, one of the things that you noticed is they were terrified on, on a Friday night, but on Saturday when we were out there, they were like, they were confident, hey, Dad, you got to deal with this thing. And as we walk with Jesus, we get confidence for our fear of rabid possums. No, I'm serious. We get confidence in walking with Jesus as we see him present in the worst case scenarios of our life. And that's what David saw time and time again. And it began as he was a young shepherd boy, as he, as he was out in the field, and he takes out Goliath. And a lot of people try to make that story about David. That story's about the Lord. That story's about Jesus being the strong tower of David's life. And we see the same language in Psalm 84. The sons of Korah write this psalm, and in verses, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then verse 10 as well. It says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs. Do you hear that language of desire? My soul longs. It even faints in its desire for the courts of the Lord, for the presence of the Lord, for the hospitality of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts, a day in your presence, God, is better than a thousand elsewhere. And that word thousand is just a figurative, it's a figurative word that means an innumerable amount of days elsewhere. One day with you. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. He's saying, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be willing to take any role as long as I could be near you, God. Some of you, as you are walking with Jesus now, or you are seeking whatever it is you're seeking, uh, find yourself disappointed about the, 
the manifestation of the presence of God in your life. Maybe he's not quite as powerful. Just like the Jews thought Jesus should be more powerful as he rode into Jerusalem to, to redeem sinners. Maybe he's not as powerful. He's not as mighty. He's not as timely as you would want him to be. David says it doesn't matter. He gets to call the shots. But what I desire is an unbroken presence with God for all the days of my life. He has this forever outlook about how he wants to spend time with his Father in heaven. Better is one day than a thousand elsewhere. Jesus invites us deeper than visits. He wants to dwell with you. Do you, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that he wants to he wants to put all of himself in all of you? To dwell with you all the days of your life? And that you don't have to go from spiritual high to spiritual high, spiritual mountaintop to spiritual mountaintop, but Jesus would be just the same to you in the middle of the valley. Jesus wants to do that. He is eager to dwell in you. Psalm 27, 4 goes on to say this. <clears throat> All the days of my life that I would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And he goes on in verse, um, verse 8 to talk about what it looks like to gaze upon the Lord. He says, you have said, seek my face, and my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. So David is clear. Hey, God, it feels like you're hiding from me. It feels like you're not present with me right now. And I'm seeking your face, so where are you? Do you hear the honesty in that prayer? If you feel that way right now, have you prayed that way to your Father in heaven? God, shine your face on me. Show me how you're present with me right now because it doesn't feel like you're present with me. It doesn't feel like you're dwelling with me. To gaze on his beauty and to seek his face. In the 15th and 16th century, the, uh, the early European reformers had a phrase that, in, that they thought encompassed what the Christian life was. And it was this Latin phrase, quorum Dio. And it means to live before the face of God. To live before the face of God. There's something about the face. It, it describes a, an intimacy of our access to God. Why is the face so important? Because it's the threshold of the heart. The face is the threshold of the heart. I mean, think about this. Um, you're, you're never going to get to someone's true affection and heart without meeting them face to face. It's just not going to happen. I mean... If I would have just stayed in the Facebook stalk phase with my wife and never met her face to face, I guarantee you I'm not going to have her hand and I'm definitely not going to have her heart. You've got to meet face to face. And, 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 and when you meet face to face with others, there is, there is much less opportunity for miscommunication. And there's just a nonverbal presence that you really can't describe when you are meeting face to face. And so David says, God, I'm seeking your face because that's what you've told me to do. And I'm reminded of Moses, right? Whenever he goes, whenever he goes up on, uh, to Mount Sinai and, and uh, gets the ten words from the Lord, the ten commandments, and he comes down and his face, his face is glowing. And they have to veil his face because he's been in the presence of God. And later in Exodus 33, he says, you know, God, I want to see your face. This is after all the catastrophes have happened with the, 
you know, the, uh, the bronze calf and the golden calf and all that kind of stuff. And he says, God, I want to see your face. We're in the wilderness. We're in the desert. It doesn't feel like you're near to us. Show me your face, God. And God basically says, Moses, you don't know what you're asking for. You're, what you're asking for would kill you. <laughs> you, you couldn't be contained. Um, and so he says, but because you're so eager, I'm going I'm to hide your face. I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to let you see me as I pass by. Moses was eager to cling to the Lord. Guys, we have that type of access. Do you believe that? You have that type of access to be honest to the Lord, to be eager to follow and to seek Him. But if you're anything like me, there are some mornings when you wake up and the last thing on your mind is seeking the face of the Lord. Isn't it? Some mornings you wake up and you're like, man, I don't even feel like being alive today. I don't want to seek the Lord. I mean, I, 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 just, I just don't, I'm not feeling it today, God. So what do we do when we don't feel like seeking the face of the Lord? We don't feel like maintaining our communion with Jesus by seeking at Him, by gazing on His beauty. I think we openly and honestly go before our Father in Heaven and we tell Him that. We tell Him to revive our hearts, to revive our souls, to make Jesus beautiful, to make the aroma of His presence something that is desirable to us. And guess what? He's the one that rebirthed the heart in you to see Jesus as beautiful. Can he not revive it again? A lot of times we live this Christian life as like, okay, Jesus saved us, now it's up to me to kind of keep the maintenance going. He, this is why in the book of Acts you see the Holy Spirit being poured out on people multiple times. Because he revives their soul, he revives their spirit as they follow him. We have to seek his face. And we have to ask for the desire to follow Jesus. Because we can't always come up with it inside of ourselves. It's a gift from God. I mean, think about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is this, uh, is this prophecy really about the humility of Jesus. In, Psalm 50, in, in Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says this. He, meaning Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him. And no beauty that we should desire Him. Out of the womb, we will never desire Jesus. We'll never see Him beautiful. We'll always think that He's worthless. But when God comes and He pours His Spirit out into our hearts, we see something completely different because we have new hearts. And so we're asking for God to revive our gaze upon Jesus. What does it mean to gaze? To gaze means to look at something long enough to capture and then recapture its beauty over and over again. I mean, think about going to uh, um, an art museum. You see people walking around just staring at paintings for 30, 45 minutes. Simple-minded people like myself say, hey man, did you get it? I mean, it's there. Can you see it? But what they're looking at is for something more than first glance. That there's more beauty to be discovered than just a drive-by. And it's the same that happens with us. That we're to continue gazing upon Jesus. Jesus is like, he's like a diamond, right? I mean, I can remember whenever Megan and I got married, and uh, we're getting married rather, and uh, I was working at a restaurant, and 
I had heard all this, you know, talk about, hey, you really got to put, a, you know, a diamond ring on her finger. And I'm thinking, I, you know, I, I've kind of looked at those. And can I do the cubic zirconium kind of route? Can we do that? It looks the same. Can we do that? And so, you know, I was convinced, okay, I got to do a diamond and invest in the marriage. And so I did what any loving husband would do. I sold my motorcycle. That was a tough blow. I sold it. It, it. If you get close to Megan, you can kind of hear it revving up every once in a while, her finger. But uh, So I sold it, and I went, and I bought the best ring that I could, uh, and I gave it to her. And as I was looking for a diamond, I had to learn about the four C's of diamonds. You might know about the four C's, all the cut clarity, all that kind of business. So... Um, and as I'm walking into the diamond store, they have all these special lights that make the diamonds look like, I mean, they draw out all of their best characteristics. And I'm looking, man, I've never seen anything that captures my eye quite like that. And that's why we do diamonds, right? Jesus is the better diamond. Guys, we have to, this is why you can keep going back to different scriptures and seeing something unique and different about yourself in light of Jesus. And, and something different about Jesus, something deeper about Jesus as he meets you in that moment. We have to gaze upon his beauty. I mean, think about this. It takes time to enjoy anything that's truly good in life. It takes time. It can't be enjoyed instantaneously. God gives us Jesus so that we can gaze and seek, seek him out all the days of our life. See, what we want to be is we want to be kind of microwaved into maturity. But the problem is we have, um, we kind of have this gospel forgetfulness about us. And so we have to keep coming back to the elementary truths because we're that forgetful. And we still have this flesh that wages war within us and we need to be reminded that Jesus is good. So we keep coming back to it every, every day. That's what it means to commune with God. And this is why Robert Murray McShane once said this, for every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. For every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ because Christ is who you actually are. Christ is who you're actually becoming. Christ is who you actually will be. He is, Paul was, Paul was so eager to remind us that the Christian journey is about seeing Christ fully formed in each of us. Jesus wants to give him all of himself. He wants to give us all of himself. But it takes time for us to grab that. So we have this, we have this, at New City we use this language of the already and the not yet. The already is those things that we've experienced of God. We've been justified by his grace. We've been adopted into his family. We've been converted. We've been given new hearts. But we still experience all of these not yets of the kingdom of God. Those things that have yet to take full fruition in our lives. We've, we're not fully sanctified. We're not uh, glorified. We're not, we don't have new bodies yet. So we, we live in the tension of the already of who Jesus is and what he's given us and the not yet. It's this spiritual pilgrimage. And, and what God implants in us when he saves us is the desire to seek and to gaze. We're to be mining out the treasures of Jesus every single day. Because in it, we see that we are no longer who we were. Those things don't describe us anymore. We are no longer what we did. But Christ is being formed 
in us. But Paul says that without Christ coming to us and and giving us His Spirit and redeeming us by faith, that it's like we have this veil over our hearts. It's the same language that's used as Moses approaches God. Listen to it. It comes from 2 Corinthians 3.16-18. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What does a veil do? It kind of gives a, a, a blindness, a, a protection. It's, you can't see clearly when a veil is over your face. It goes on to say, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, as Christians, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. And this is, this is the beautiful piece right here. And being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what is God doing in us as we live in the tension of the already and the not yet? And when we seek to have this anthem about us, this, this, this confidence that says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? What does that look like? Well, it's the Holy Spirit operating inside of us, transferring, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. Did you know that glory was not just something that you were after for God, but something that He puts inside of you? Did you know that? You were made to behold glory according to the Scripture. What is glory? It's worth. It's weightiness. God redeems us, and He makes us worthy. Even though we're unworthy, He makes us worthy because He's redeemed the image of His Son Jesus inside of us. And and it says we get this in bite-sized pieces. We're transformed from one degree of glory to another. He grows us every day as we seek His face. As we gaze on His beauty, He changes us. Even though your circumstances are not changing, your heart is changing if you are seeking gazing Jesus, gazing at Jesus. So what do we do as we seek His face, as we gaze at His beauty? What do we do? Well, David says in Psalm 27, verse 14, We wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Waiting for the Lord is our work. If He's the one that's changing us from one degree of glory to another, if He's the one that is putting His glory inside of us, we wait for Him. We hold tight. The Scriptures lead us to believe that unless we wait on the Lord, there is no strength to be found. There is no courage to be found. Waiting for the Lord is the work. And you know, this last point, David kind of closes this mixed bag of emotion psalm by saying this. So my, my question to you is this. What are you waiting on right now? What are you waiting? I, I was convicted by the Scripture this week, and so um, I just started listing all of the things that I'm waiting for the Lord on right now. You know, and things that came up. And, it was, and I was writing these things through tears. What am, how am I waiting for you right now? God, how do I wish you would show up that, that I'm not seeing it right now? It was things like the salvation of my father. It was things like the healing of my wife. It was, it was things like, you know, the, 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 the growth of the kingdom of God in Lawrenceville. It was all of these personal things that are deep, deeply buried inside of me that, that tend to be 
manifest themselves in frustrations. I mean, God, how long do I have to wait on you to redeem my father? How long, how long, God? He can handle that kind of honesty. And as we, as we get honest with the Lord and, we, and we, we, we really address those things that we're waiting on, the things that are uh, they're affecting us regardless if we're going to acknowledge them or not, we turn our anxieties into prayer. And that makes all the difference. They're no longer complaints, but they're petitions to ask the God to move in a miraculous way. I, I was at a monastery in Coleman, Alabama about five years ago. I was in a discipleship group with a fellow named Monty, and uh, he was kind of pouring himself into me as we were preparing to plant the church. And uh, on the way there, we have no idea where we're going. <laughs> we pull up after like four hours of driving. To, we get off at Coleman, Alabama. I'm like, all right, dude, where are we going? So we pull up. We kind of go through the gates of the monastery. And, and as we get there, he says, all right, give me your phones, you know, Give me your wallets. Give me everything. We're going we're gonna to lock them away. You're going to go and you're going to have two days of silence with the Lord. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, really? And so, um, and so the way, if you've ever done a solitude retreat before, the way it typically works is you're pretty restless for a little bit. And usually, like for me, I got about three solid hours of just really dwelling in the presence of the Lord after all the busyness and the noise kind of died down. And the Lord took me to Isaiah chapter 30. We were, at this point, we were, we were in the process of planting. My heart was restless. I was eager to see God move. And I was just, it seemed like every turn of the corner was a different disappointment. And the Lord took me to Isaiah 30. And verse 15, he pressed it into me. And here's what it says. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. The context of this is, you know, the Israelites have kind of been conquered and they're in captivity and um, they're anxious. They're frustrated. They're trying to make things happen. Maybe you're trying to make things happen in life right now. Because we have the Holy One of Israel fighting for us, who is our light and is our salvation, we gaze upon His beauty. And the way that we fight for the faith church looks a little bit more like rest than it does work. That's what he's saying here. Return and rest. That's how you'll be saved, Israel. That's how you'll be saved, church. In returning to Jesus and resting and gazing on His beauty. And in the quietness of your heart, you'll find the strength to carry on and see Jesus supremely above in above and in and through all things this is our jesus and this is the hope so uh, my question to you is this is what is your one thing what is it that's keeping you from saying the lord is my light and my salvation whom shall i fear what is keeping you from confidence in the ever-present jesus that extends the invitation to dwell with you all the days of your life let's pray together Father, we, we come to you this morning knowing that you are more eager to commune with us than we could ever be to commune with you. Lord, would you revive our hearts? Would you revive our souls this morning? I pray uh, for those this morning that are tremendously discouraged. That as they think about their fear, 
the list just keeps scrolling on and on and on. God, I pray that in a supernatural fashion, you would give confidence today. You would give confidence that, that calms storms. You would give confidence that, that mutes the enemy. You would give confidence that silences oppressors. That you would give us your presence in the form of a stillness of heart that seeks to gaze and to mine out the beauty of Jesus Christ. So God, we seek your face this morning. Even though we're stumbling forward, we're falling backwards, we seek your face because you are holding more tightly to us than we could ever hold on to you. So Jesus, we ask that you would meet with us. We ask that you'd meet with us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.